So welcome to Proverbs on Sunday, September 20th, second day of Rosh Hashanah, 2009. Very glad to have you here with us. Thank you so much for joining. And before we get started, uh, any questions from previous classes or questions that have come up during the week that you would like to cover? Okay, and seeing no response, I'll take that as a no. So we are in Proverbs chapter 10, and we're starting this week with verse 24. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 24. And the verse reads, when the, What the wicked dreads will come upon him, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 24, What the wicked dreads will come upon him, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. So, for those of you that are familiar with the approach, the first thing we're going to ask is, uh, what are the questions? And picking an answer to your question about the Hesed class, uh, it's scheduled for an hour from now. I don't know if it has resumed. Uh, you would have to email Ray or Jack Saunders to confirm that. So what are the questions on our verse uh, to start tonight? What the wicked dreads will come upon him, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. What questions come to mind with regard to that verse? pause and give you just a moment to consider that. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, and the desire of the righteous will be granted. Pamela Good, what are the dreads and what are the desires? Yeah, what, what does the wicked dread? And in the second half, well, it says the desire of the righteous. Well, what is it? What, what is the desire of the righteous? that they're going to be granted. And we could add to that, why does what the wicked dreads come upon him? And he's dreading something, he or she, so why does it come upon him? And why is it that the righteous's desire is granted? Okay, and Pamela, you, you answered a question I'm about to ask, which was, I was going to start with the first one, um, which was, what is the wicked dread? And I assume that your answer to, um, to that question, which is being caught. Very good. Very good. And Naomi, welcome. Uh, I'm, I hope you're able to hear me. Uh, if you can, um, uh, or if you're unable to hear me, let me know. Uh, but if you can, let me know. That's great. And, uh, very good. Thank you so much. And we're just starting now in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 24. And just to uh, uh, just to reiterate something that we've covered in, uh, in in the past, our methodology in looking at these verses is to take each one and start not by trying to figure out what it means right off the bat, but to ask ourselves. What are the questions we should be asking about this verse? And so the questions about this verse are, what is uh, Proverbs 10, verse 24, which is what the wicked dreads will come upon him, 
and the desire of the righteous will be granted. The questions are, well, what does the wicked dread? And why does it come upon him? Why does he end up getting what he dreads? What's the desire of the righteous? And why is that granted? And we were starting with the first of those questions, which is, what does the wicked dread? And Pamela's wrote, being caught. And that's excellent. Let's also, to get at that, let's look at the opposite. Let's ask ourselves, what does the wicked want? If you take a wicked person, what does a wicked person want? And they must want something. So what is it that they're after? If you have answers, you can just type them in the, uh, in the text box. This is a discussion class, so we want this to be very, very interactive. Okay, Peggy, good. Success, power, money, uh, all those kinds of things. Fame, good. Uh, ex excellent. The wicked wants their plans to succeed. And they've got certain evil desires, and you've pegged a bunch of them. They want money, they want success, they want power, they want fame, maybe they want vengeance. Whatever it is, the wicked person wants that plan to succeed. So, what he dreads is the opposite, that they won't succeed. He dreads that something will happen that will prevent his plans from becoming successful. And Pamela, you hit on a you know a perfect specific example of that. He dreads being caught if he's doing something illegal or improper or inappropriate because that'll mess up his plans. I mean, he's got his designs in mind for the money, the success, the power, the fame, and he does not want something to get in his way. So the wicked person is constantly in turmoil because he's worried that his plans are going to fail. I mean, you know, he's got all these balls up in the air, and i got to do this to this guy and that to that guy and make this thing happen so I can get this money from that guy and so I can, you know, uh, get even with that guy. All this stuff he's working on is constantly going to put him in turmoil because he's worried that his plans are going to fail. Now, if he's worried about failure, why is it that that failure is going to come upon him? I mean, that's what the verse is telling us. It's telling us that what the wicked dreads will, in fact, come upon him. Okay? So why is it that failure will ultimately come upon the wicked? Okay? And Pamela, you're right, he certainly doesn't want to be in, in prison, uh, for sure. And Peggy, good, good point. There are a number of what we could call successful, powerful, and wicked people. People that are in positions of power, that are doing wicked things, that are doing evil things. Okay? So, and, and we'll address that in this. But let's just for a moment ask, why do you think that ultimately the wicked will fail? And I'm, I'm thinking about this from a practical standpoint, not like, well... God will intervene and, and something will happen. But let's just talk about a practical situation of, um, you know, everyday life. If a person is, is, uh, has wicked plans, why are 
they ultimately destined to fail. Okay. Pamela, you mentioned they run the world. Are you talking about the wicked run the world? Not sure what, what group you mean there. Okay. Uh, could be in some cases, but there could also be some good and righteous people who are involved in, in certain things. But let's just take a wicked person who's got wicked plans of vengeance, of getting fame and fortune, not through legitimate means. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, uh, but through, through very illegitimate means, by hurting other people, by doing something that we would certainly consider very evil or improper. Why is it that they will ultimately fail? But what they dread will come upon them. Okay, Peggy, good. Your husband says that whenever they get, whatever they get doesn't last. They just want more. Okay, so their desires are never satisfied. Very good. Okay, so let's take that wicked person and look at them for a minute. The wicked person is operating according to his emotions and not in accordance with reality. I mean, he want, he's, he's got these desires for, you know, things that are... Or, uh, he wants and he's driven by his emotions he's not driven by reality to get those things he's not saying well let me rationally figure out how much money I need to live a comfortable life and I'll get that much and then I'll go you know pursue knowledge and wisdom that's not what the wicked are thinking they're thinking I want more I gotta have more I can't stand it that somebody else has a you know this kind of a house or car and I don't you know they're caught up in in their emotions now, since they're not operating in accordance with reality, sooner or later, the wicked person is going to come in conflict with reality. Because if you don't operate in accordance with it, sooner or later, something doesn't work. Think about operating a computer, okay? It has certain rules and setups and things you have to do to make it operate properly. If you try to operate it in a way that isn't in accordance with the way it was set up to operate, sooner or later you're going to get an error or a problem or a lockup, you know, or something that's going to happen. So the wicked are not operating in accordance with reality, so they're going to eventually, because they have to live within reality, they're going to come in conflict with it. Now, if you, if a person comes up into conflict or bangs their head against reality, I mean, who do you think is going to win? The person or reality? Uh, I'll take the bet for reality just about any time. Uh, because uh, those plans that they have, if they are not in accordance with reality, if they are designed to cut corners and not operate in accordance with the way the world works and the laws of nature and the, world's, the rules of civilization, um, the sooner or later those plans are going to have to fail because by definition those plans are in conflict with reality and because again remember he's operating in accordance with his emotions so he's not seeing reality clearly so by the sheer fact that the wicked is operating in accordance with his emotions and not in accordance with reality he's going to eventually bump up against reality and that which he dreads which is the failure of his plans, is going to come to pass. I mean, it's a little bit like if you build a building, 
in accordance with the laws of physics, and you take into account all the appropriate engineering things, the building will stand, because those engineering laws are laws of reality. But if you built a building not in accordance with the laws of engineering reality, you made your foundation posts too thin, uh, you didn't put structural supports in the right places and so forth, the building, by definition, sooner or later, and probably sooner, uh, is going to crumble. So, by definition, what the wicked dreads is going to come upon him because of the way he's operating uh, in his life. Okay? Any questions about that so far? And Pamela, you have a very good point. Uh, the, uh, the, the wicked are, uh, in some respect, narcissists because they're very, very focused on what they want. And that brings us to the second half of the verse, which is, the desire of the righteous will be granted. So, what is the, we've talked about what the wicked's after, and what their fear is. What is, what is it that the righteous desire? If we had to sum up what the desire of the righteous is, what would you say? What do the righteous desire? Okay, Pamela, to serve Hashem. Okay, good. We'll have to define what that means. Um, and Peggy, you've mentioned peace, and I would agree. And Naomi, yes. Um, peace and... Uh, Peggy, do you mean peace in their relationship with Hashem? I just want to make sure. I wasn't sure if you're connecting two, two thoughts there. Okay, they want to keep God's laws, all right. And Naomi, thank you. Peace with themselves and with Hashem. And Pamela, good. Whatever is in according to Torah, good. This is excellent. Okay, so let's... Um, and they want to have a relationship with God. So that brings us to how do you have a relationship with God and how are the righteous doing that in their everyday lives? So let me suggest to you that the desire of the righteous, if we, if we try to, to sort of encompass a lot of the things that are being said here, the desire of the righteous is to live in accordance with God's systems. God set up the world, and he has systems within the world. I mean, we all know about the laws of nature, and atmospheric systems, and ecological systems, and you know the various systems, systems the law of gravity, uh, uh, the, the system of the seasons and when you plant and when you harvest and all these various systems that we live within. And then there's the halakhic system, the system of, of Torah commandments and so forth. The righteous, the desire of the righteous is to live in accordance with those systems. And that is reality. They want to live in accordance with reality, with God's systems and be involved in learning and growth. Now, the righteous person, going back to your comment, Pamela, that the wicked are narcissists, the righteous person recognizes that he is part of a total system of society, of civilization. Uh, he has a responsibility around the system of justice and so forth. Unlike the wicked, he's not self-centered. 
he sees himself as one little piece of the giant picture, the big system, and that he has a responsibility to do uh, what he can do, uh, but not just because it's for himself, but to enhance the system. So the righteous person's desire is to operate in accordance with the systems that God has created, and he has honed his skills at seeing reality very, very clearly so he can analyze situations accurately and operate in accordance with reality. So if he's in business, he has honed his skill to be able to see what's an appropriate way to go about doing business so that I can make a profit and I can be financially successful and at the same time do that in a context of justice and keeping the halakhic rules and laws around uh, appropriate business and basically living the Torah life, if you will, that God intended in the process of being involved in business. Okay, At the same time, he wants to be involved in learning. Uh, I mean, he doesn't... Uh, and and the, the righteous person doesn't have to, to scheme at other people's expense to do that, uh, like a wicked person might be in order to achieve his end. I mean, the righteous person's... Uh, focus is he wants to be involved in learning and the other things that he does uh, you know he gets up in the morning and, and he has to eat and uh, bathing and taking good care of himself and exercising and all that stuff all that and, and even going to work and doing his job all that is done for the purpose of being able to be involved in learning and growing and that is how he uh, grows in his relationship with Hashem is his level of learning so all those things for him are means to the ultimate end, which is to be involved in learning. They are not the end in and of themselves. If he has a car, the car is for uh, you know certain practical purposes. It's not, well, my life will really be fulfilled when I get a car. It's like the car is only a tool, like so many other things in his life, so that he can ultimately be involved in what he really wants to do, which is to be involved in learning, because that's what's going to uh, grow him closer to Hashem. So, uh, and, and interestingly, you know, learning doesn't necessarily cost a lot. I mean, the righteous can learn just by using their thinking skills to think through ideas and situations. And when reality bumps up against their plans, the righteous person's plans, for example, uh, let's suppose he planned to go learn with a friend and a snowstorm comes along uh, that keeps him housebound for a few days. Well, he's okay with that too because he lives in the world of reality and snow is part of the world of reality. So he accepts the reality of life and just flows with it. And even further, if the righteous person finds himself in a situation where he's emotionally upset about a situation, he takes that as an opportunity for learning as well. For example, suppose he's very upset because the snowstorm came and he's not able to learn with his friend. Well, that strong emotion is a signal to him that something else must be going on. Like, why am I resisting this snowstorm so much? What's the cause of my big anger... Uh, 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 the big amount of anger that I'm feeling around that? What's that about? So he uses that information as an opportunity to undo old emotions 
that might be preventing him from seeing reality clearly. So the desire of the righteous, which is to live in accordance with reality and to be involved in learning and growth, is granted, as the verse says, by virtue of the life that the righteous has chosen. He avoids conflicts and he avoids stress by learning to live within reality, and so his desire is granted to him by God by virtue of the systems that God created. So what the wicked dreads will come upon him, that is, he's operating against reality, and sure enough, reality is going to catch up with him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted because their desire is to be involved in the world of reality and be part of God's systems. And that will happen by virtue of the life that they've chosen. Okay, any questions about that or any comments? Pamela, a good point. He will regard the, he, assume you mean the righteous person, will regard things as being from Hashem uh, for his good. He will see the things that happen to him as, uh, as opportunities. Uh, and, you know, if things don't go as he planned, then he'll go back and look at his plans and see, gee, did I make a mistake? Did I do something that uh, perhaps I should have done differently? Uh, or maybe it's just a case where things turned out differently than he expected, and he'll accept that as well. So he is operating in accordance with the world that God created and with the systems that God created. And he'll be, he'll be very uh, satisfied and happy with being able to do that. Very good. Any other questions or comments? Okay, good. Let's move on to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25. Verse 25, and it reads, When the storm passes, the wicked man is no more, but the righteous one is an everlasting foundation, or the righteous one is uh, the foundation of the world, depending on uh, translation. When the storm passes, the wicked man is no more, but the righteous one is an everlasting foundation, or the foundation of the world. So, what are the questions? What questions do we need to be asking about that verse? When the storm passes, the wicked man is no more, but the righteous one is an everlasting foundation, or foundation of the world. Any things that don't immediately make sense or that we might want to wonder about? When the storm passes, the wicked man is no more, but the righteous one is an everlasting foundation. Okay, good, Pamela. What kind of storm? Absolutely. What is King Solomon referring to when he talks about a storm and a storm passing? Does he literally mean a storm, like heavy rain and wind? Or is this some kind of metaphor? <coughs> okay, good. Uh, let me pause for a minute. Ah, very good, Naomi. What, what foundation? 
Does that mean generation? What what is that? What do those words mean? Is an everlasting foundation or foundation of the world? What what does that mean? And if it's a metaphor, what's it a metaphor for? So what does it mean uh, that the righteous one is an everlasting foundation? What does it mean that the wicked man is no more? And and interestingly, we could ask why this particular comparison? Because it seems like the comparison should be that the wicked man is no more and the righteous man survives. But that's not what King Solomon wrote. He wrote the righteous is an everlasting foundation. So let's keep that in the back of our mind and see if we can figure out what the comparison is about there. Okay, and Naomi, does this generation of the righteous flourish forever? Uh, good question. Good question. And let me pause, Pamela, because it looks like uh, both of you were writing something. Ah, okay, Naomi, thank you for that clarification. The wicked, as you wrote, is without the foundation of Torah reality, so are they uprooted? Very good question. A very good point, and I think we'll see uh, how that plays out as we analyze this verse. And Pamela, yes, Hashem's purpose uh, are bound up with Torah and the Jewish nation, I would agree, uh, and we have an opportunity to... Uh, to be part of that. Now, in fairness, Hashem also has a purpose for the entire world. Uh, and fortunately, we have the Torah given through uh, the Jewish nation uh, so that we can learn and understand and, and uh, uh, grow uh, in, in our knowledge and uh, understanding of Hashem. So, uh, and yes, Naomi, like a building without physics, uh, with, without Torah or reality, the wicked are in danger of crumbling. So let's, let's look at this uh, a little deeper. If King Solomon, let's start with the question of the storm. Now, if King Solomon were talking about a literal storm of wind and rain, we would have a problem. And the reason that would be a problem is that we don't really see if we apply a, a true regular storm to the verse, we don't see that that really is how the real world works. I mean, when a, when a big typhoon or a hurricane or a big rainstorm comes, uh, we don't see in the practical everyday world that all the wicked perish and the righteous survive. Uh, so I'll suggest to you that... Um, well, as we've discussed before, the book of Proverbs is about practical life in the real world. And when we see strong winds and rain come through an area, the wicked still seem to survive. Storms seem to affect everyone just about equally. So I suggest that King Solomon must be talking about something else. And yes, Pamela, like a crisis, absolutely. I'll suggest that storm is a metaphor for all of the challenges of life. 
Now, those challenges could take any form, but the sense that I think King Solomon's getting at here is of a severe test. Think about what storms do. Storms tend to destroy things. They're not gentle. They uproot trees, they blow over buildings, they cause mudslides, all kinds of things. So we're talking here about major life challenges, not just something little. Now, let's look at the wicked. What have they built their life on? They've built their life on their evil desires, on emotional desires. And we've discussed in the last verse and in others that those desires aren't based in reality. The evil person hasn't sat down and thought through everything in a rational way and set his life up according to reality. He may use rational thinking in some parts of his life. For example, he might use rational thinking to try to plan out the perfect bank heist, uh, a perfect robbery. But even if he does that, his overriding reason for doing it is to fulfill his emotional desires, which aren't in line with reality. Now, by definition, since the wicked person isn't operating in accordance with reality, there have to be some flaws in his approach. In fact, uh, there are likely many flaws in his approach because, again, it's not based on reality. So when the storm comes, the life challenges, the strong winds of adversity, the wicked person's plans will fail, and in a strong enough storm, he will crumble. His whole world will be shattered. Even if he physically survives, the manifestation of his incorrect approach to life won't survive. An interesting example of this might be Adolf Hitler. Now here we have in Hitler, a very wicked man, who devised horribly evil plans and began to carry them out. However, when the storm came, in this case it was the rising up of the Allied forces, he had weather issues on the Russian front, and so forth, his plans didn't survive and he became, quote, no more, unquote. In this case it was by his own hand, but he didn't survive. And if we look at history, I'd say that it's difficult and maybe impossible to find an example of a case where a wicked person and their plans have survived, even after the person's death. I mean, it is true that some wicked people may get away with very wicked things for quite a while, and perhaps even up until their deaths, but they don't survive in terms of history or in terms of a universal recognition of their value. They're almost always ultimately seen for what they are. So, now let's look at the righteous. What happens to them when the storm comes? Well, the righteous person has based his or her life on truth, and so they've carefully analyzed each situation in life and have planned accordingly. Their life isn't based on their emotions, but it is based on a rational analysis of reality. Now, they know there are storms, and they also recognize what's within their control and what's outside of their control. And they take that into account in their planning as well. So when the storm comes, they're ready. Now that doesn't mean that everything always goes their way, but they recognize, as we discussed in the last verse, that that too is part of reality. So because their plans are based on reality, and even include the reality of the possibility of a storm, their ideas will survive and will carry on. They'll last. 
they won't be destroyed because they are based in reality. So, and Pamela, a very interesting point you've made. Every prophet survived at least four kings. Very, very good. So when it says that the righteous one is an everlasting foundation or a foundation of the world, it's showing us that the righteous one is an everlasting foundation because he bases his life on reality and wisdom and understanding. So the verse is a statement about the basis of the life of the righteous. Okay, does that make sense? And are there any questions or comments? Okay, everybody comfortable so far? I'll take no response as a yes, but let me know if you're not. Okay. Let me pause just for a second, Pamela, because I see you writing something. Okay. And Naomi, I hope this makes uh, sense, and please let me know if you have questions, too. Pamela, it's a very good point. It's really about Torah or void of it, uh, or the lack of it. Yeah, I mean, it's about living the Torah life versus not living the Torah life. I mean, God gave us, essentially, a manual for how to live the best life. And, uh, and, and this is it. And... If, if we follow it, then we, you know, get the benefits of, of doing that. If we don't follow it, then we get the consequences of doing that. Um, I shared in another class, and you may have been on it at the time, that Rabbi Morton Moskowitz, uh, one of my uh, great Torah mentors, uh, said to my wife and I, this was relatively early on in our years of study, he said to my wife, I can prove to you that the Torah life is the best life there is. And she, not being one to back down from a challenge, said, okay, Rabbi, you're on. And it took many classes uh, and many hours of discussion. And uh, a number of months later, she said to me, he's done it. He has proved to me that the Torah life is the best life. And, and this was not in a sense of, yeah, if I get to the world to come or whatever. This is a sense of in the here and now, today, in the practical, physical world that we live in. The Torah life is the best life there is. Um, and and uh, uh, Proverbs and uh, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, clearly go through and, and show kind of step by step and in case by case how, um, how that's true. And the things that people often value in life are uh, not the things that will actually bring them true happiness uh, and the best life they can have. So, very good point. I'd like to do something a little unusual at this point, and I'd like to jump to another verse and do that one first before we cover verse 26. And I think it'll be obvious as to why uh, once we're done. I'd like to jump over to Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4, and that reads, The soul of a sluggard lusts and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent will be fattened. 
Let me read it again. The soul of a sluggard lusts and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent will be fattened. So you, a different way you could probably say that is, he who desires and doesn't have, that's the soul of a lazy person, uh, but the soul of a diligent person will be satisfied. So, let me read it one more time. The soul of a sluggard lusts and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent will be fattened. So, what are the questions? I'll pop one out right off the bat. What's a sluggard? It's, it's a funny word. Uh, especially for us here in the Pacific Northwest because slugs are very uh, abundant in Northwest gardens uh, in our Northwest climate out here. Uh, so it brings to mind that. The soul of a sluggard lusts and has nothing. So what's a sluggard and why does he lust and have nothing? Okay, Pamela, diligent in study or the opposite, okay. And the soul of the diligent will be fattened, so we could ask, well, why will the soul of the diligent be fattened? And let me pause for a second, because I see you both writing something. Okay, diligent, the soul of the diligent will be... Uh, fattened because he grows. Okay, good. And Naomi, you look like you want to make a comment. Okay, good. Opposite or, or diligent. Okay, so Rabbi Moskowitz shared with me the following. Rashi, the great commentator Rashi, says that if a person desires the good and doesn't have it, then he's lazy. Now, if a person desires the bad, we would say he's evil. But that's not lazy. Okay, An evil person could be very industrious. The lazy person is a person for whom the ideas are not real. Okay, A lazy person is a person for whom the ideas are not real. Yes, they see the idea, but the idea isn't real enough to them to provoke action. So, the lazy student knows they need to do their homework, but the idea and the consequences and what that will bring upon them isn't real enough to them that they actually will take action on it. And the answer for a lazy person is that he has to become a person for whom the ideas are real. So the definition of lazy, the sluggard, is not that he desires evil, but that he desires good, but it isn't real to him, so he doesn't act upon it, even though he knows it in his mind. Okay? So he's got the idea, but he hasn't got the reality of it. It hasn't clicked. Yeah, he could stand up and recite the idea, and he could say, yeah, I should do my homework. But it's not real enough to him that he's acting on it. Okay? And Pamela, yes, 
the mind is on something else or could be on something else uh, and it could be that he's distracted but I want to make sure we differentiate distraction from the fact that the idea just isn't real enough to him he doesn't get it uh, you could say that um, for example about uh, a, a teenager who starts smoking who says uh, you know y yeah I know cigarettes uh, are known to cause cancer uh, but obviously that idea isn't real to him because if the idea was real to him he wouldn't do it if he knew it was going to cause cancer, shorten his life, give him emphysema, all those things. Okay. And Naomi wrote, uh, I'm not sure of the word, he does not imply his idea, the lazy person. Uh, I'm not sure what you mean, if you can elaborate a little more. Uh, that would help. So, the diligent person, by contrast, uh, is in a situation where the ideas are real to him. So he acts on them. And what makes him diligent is the fact that the ideas are real to him. So he takes action. He goes and does his homework. Or he doesn't smoke the cigarette or, or whatever uh, it might be. So the difference there between the diligent person and the lazy person is they both see the ideas, but for the diligent person, the ideas are real. And for the sluggard, they're not real. And Pamela, you wrote implement. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Can you give me a little more information? Okay, so we could ask ourselves the question, well, gee, if someone's lazy, how do you fix that? Um, oh, thank you, Pamela. Now you, I get it. Uh, uh, Pamela, you're, uh, I think, explaining what Naomi was trying to say, and I didn't catch it there. Naomi, it sounds like you were saying trying to say that the lazy person doesn't implement his idea. That's that, true. Very good. Thank you. I hadn't made that connection. So suppose you have a lazy person. So how do you fix it? Or suppose you find yourself that you're lazy. Like, you know, I really should exercise, but, and I, and I know I'd feel better if I exercised, but somehow I just don't manage to get myself out of the chair to do it. So, a way to deal with that is to look at all the benefits associated with doing the thing that you're trying to do, like exercise, and the consequences of not doing them, and then paste those in a book, or just write them all down in a list of all the benefits of doing this thing that I want to do but don't seem to be doing, and the consequences of not doing it, and then review those ideas. Just review the ideas. Okay? And one day, you'll just, unless you have some addiction or emotion against that thing, one day you'll just get up and do it. And you won't do it out of guilt. You'll do it just because you know you need to do it. In other words, if instead of beating yourself up over the fact that, say, you don't exercise and you know you should, 
If you simply write down all the ideas about why it makes sense to exercise and the consequences of not exercising, and you simply review those ideas every day, not beating yourself up, not trying to guilt or shame or cajole yourself into it, just keep reviewing the ideas, then pretty soon the ideas become so real to you that you will just naturally get up and start exercising. And you won't do it because you're beating yourself up. You'll do it because you realize, I need to do this. In other words, you have to come to a point where you really see the value of that thing. The idea has to be real to you. And that's when real behavior change takes place. Okay. Any questions about this verse? Pamela, you wrote, just mix some concrete. I'm not sure I understand what you're getting at. It's probably real obvious and I'm just missing it. Oh, okay, yes. <laughs> yes, mixing concrete will in fact give you all kinds of good exercise. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. Okay, so now that we've covered that verse, let's go and pick up verse 26 in chapter 10. So verse 26 in chapter 10 reads, As vinegar to the teeth, and as smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. As vinegar to the teeth and as smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. So, what are the questions? What questions could we ask about that verse? As vinegar to the teeth and as smoke to the eyes, so is a sluggard to those who send him. Okay, thanks Pamela. So let's, let's try some questions. What does vinegar to the teeth refer to? And what does smoke to the eyes refer to? Now we know what a sluggard is because we just answered that. So why does someone send a sluggard? I mean, it says a sluggard to those who send him. What do they want him to do? And is there an opposite here, or do we just have one idea? So, yes, absolutely, Pamela. Smoke to the eyes is stinging. Smoke to the eyes stings. It makes your eyes water. You can't see. It's painful. It's not someone that something that someone would generally do voluntarily, but it's something that people go out of their way to avoid. Okay? And I might add, pretty much the effect is immediate. If you start getting smoke in your eyes, it's not like it takes it an hour to take effect. You feel it pretty fast. So, what about vinegar to the teeth? What does vinegar to the teeth do? Anybody know? 
Uh, very good question, Pamela. Why would someone someone send such a person? Okay, we'll we'll get there. Vinegar to the teeth is acidic. It erodes the enamel on your teeth. Not a very pleasant outcome. It basically is kind of eating away at your teeth, and over time creates problems and can erode away uh, the enamel. And you're right. It, can be kind of sour for those with uh, with that um, that are particularly sensitive to that. So, and uh, so vinegar is going to do something uh, that's going to be harmful long term. Smoke is going to get in your eyes immediately. Now we could ask uh, as to whether the the King Solomon is using two examples of the same thing or whether he has both of those examples in there for different reasons. And let's hold that question and talk about the sluggard for just a second. We defined a sluggard or a lazy person as someone who desires the good and even though he sees the ideas they're not real to him so he doesn't act on them. So when when you send a sluggard what will happen? Let's say you send a sluggard to go take care of something for you. You send a sluggard over to the field to say, uh, cut the grass down, mow the lawn, uh, harvest the, the tomatoes, whatever it might be. Um, so the sluggard is presumably supposed to do something, but in fact, he's not going to do it. Okay? And it wouldn't be the case where he's going to come back to you and say, well, I did everything I could, but factors outside my control prevented me. Like, you know, I know you sent me to Chicago to close this business deal, but the flight was canceled or the key guy didn't show up at the meeting or something like that. With the sluggard, the lazy person, it was within his power to do what you wanted, and he still didn't do it. He knew what to do, you explained it, it was within his power to do it, and he still didn't do it. Okay? Now, let's suppose that you're the person who sent this guy on this important mission, and he comes back and he didn't do it. How are you, as the sender, going to feel? You sent someone to do an important mission fly to another city, close a business deal, do something. And he said, yeah, I know you sent me, but you know, I kind of got caught up watching movies at the theater while I was there, and I never made it to the business meeting on time. Uh, you know? Yeah, you're going to be frustrated. Good, Pamela. You're going to be frustrated, you're going to be upset, you can't understand, it's going to be painful, it's going to be irritating, it's not something you would ever choose voluntarily to have happen to you just like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes. The smoke effect is immediately unpleasant. And if you are dealing with this person over a long period of time, the vinegar effect is long term. So it could be that King Solomon is using two metaphors here to illustrate both immediate and long term negative effects. So, what can we learn from this? 
if we have to send someone to do something for us, we need to be very careful as to who we pick. If we pick a lazy person, a sluggard, we are likely going to experience pain and discomfort because the lazy person will see what needs to be done, but he or she still won't do it. And to avoid that, we need to look closely at the character of the person and make sure that the idea of the mission is real to them in order to avoid this kind of painful and potentially expensive outcome. Okay? Does that make sense? And let me go back. Uh, Pamela, you said, I don't understand this. Have we made it clear, or is there still a part that you don't understand? And Naomi, you said, smoke to cover his sluggardness. Um, I don't think it's so much that the verse is referring to smoke like a smoke screen, like the, the sluggard would use smoke to cover up the fact that he's lazy, but King Solomon is giving a sort of a practical physical illustration like smoke to the eyes uh, will be stinging and painful and, uh, and very unpleasant so will a sluggard be if you send him off to do something it'll be painful and stinging and unpleasant to you uh, please let me know if that if that doesn't make sense or if I've misunderstood you Okay, so the verse is telling us a little bit about, uh, from a very practical standpoint, uh, it's telling us a little bit about what to look for when you're employing people, whether you're hiring them for a, a permanent uh, position or whether you're just hiring them to go do a job for you or whether you're just delegating a task to someone. You want to make sure you pick someone for whom the task and the mission is real so you can avoid the kind of uh, painful and potentially unpleasant uh, outcome that a sluggard would give you uh, and as illustrated by smoke to the eyes and vinegar to the teeth. Okay, any questions or comments? Okay, in that case, we have about three minutes left. I don't think we've got time to cover another verse. Uh, so we'll stop here. Um, and good, Pamela, thank you. I'm, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, we, well, let me ask you, are you interested in having uh, class next week? Uh, Monday, a week from Monday is Yom Kippur. Uh, so we are in the 10 days of repentance between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So uh, would you like to have class uh, next week, or will you be uh, busy with uh, the eve of Yom Kippur and would prefer to skip next week and wait till the following week? What's your preference? Okay, good. All right, Pamela and Naomi, thank you very much. I'll, we'll plan then for next week, next Sunday at the same time. And uh, in the meantime, if you have questions during the week, um, let me know. Uh, email me at doug at thinkingdynamics.com. Uh, 
and otherwise I wish you all the very best uh, Rosh Hashanah wishes and a great week and I'll look forward to talking with you next week. Thanks so much.